You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 26 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Con Bon Johnin and David Howe. Why? I was jamming out to that earlier today because I really missed that. Here we are again with another edition of Our Ruined Lives. Our guest tonight is our friend and colleague, Alex Crabe, who is a PhD student at the University of Wyoming. And as you guys can all guess, that's where we met him. So, Mr. Crabe, how are we doing this evening? We're doing great. Thanks for having me. I remember when this started out as a drunken conversation in my living room and then to actually have it turn into something real is kind of fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. As as Crave, uh, as we mentioned in uh, our anniversary episode, Crave was one of the first people to listen to my drunken nonsense about having an inebriated archaeology podcast. And uh, it has since evolved into something marginally successful and not as drunk. Um, although tonight, I think uh, I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying a couple of vodka lemonades. So we'll just see where the night takes us. So uh, first off, as we said, Alex Crabe here is a PhD student at the University of Wyoming. He's a student of uh, Dr. Bob Kelly. Are you his last PhD student? It's starting to look that way. I, I think I might be the one to close out his career, and I don't really know if I want to be the swan song. <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm trying to think if I was his last master's, but I think if there's two other students behind me that... um. There might be a couple after you, yeah. Yeah, but I'm at the tail end. I think I might be, uh, you know, at least Bob will remember me. That's for sure. Other than that, other than sharing advisors, Crave, uh, we also share uh, some other... Jeans. Uh, no, not jeans. Uh, not jeans. Uh, no. I meant like uh, we, jeans. Yep. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to go with that. Uh, I mean, no. Uh, no. Um, Crabe and I share a pretty similar background. Um, Crabe, you are also from Northern Virginia. I am. From the, the great Commonwealth itself. Not a state, but a Commonwealth. Correct. Um, one, of, uh, one of three or four, right? Three? Kentucky and uh, in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. I think there's only a couple. I don't know what the difference is, but uh, I'll Puerto defend Rico. the fact... That's a territory. Not according to the president. No, I'm pretty sure it's China, according to him. Uh, mm-hmm. Hashtag free Winnie the Pooh. Oh, come um, on. China, <laughs> come on. It's like two minutes in, bro. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Crave, just uh, just tell us a little bit about um, your background for our listeners growing up in Northern Virginia, kind of like what got you into archaeology to begin with. So I'm, I have kind of a weird history in archaeology. My dad was actually the lawyer and chief lobbyist for SAAs in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I, I grew up in like the old office over by Union Station. Um, and my uncle's also an archaeologist. So, of course, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with archaeology going into to my undergrad. Um, I left Virginia and went out to Oregon pretty much to get as far away from the East Coast as humanly possible. I also thought at the time I was, I really wanted to be a hippie. There was just something really beautiful and, and romantic about the idea of going out to Oregon and being a hippie. And then I met a real hippie and I decided that was not the life for me. So I pretty much spent a couple years having fun in undergrad. And then as a uh, undeclared major, as a junior, kind of fell into anthropology as a, well, if everyone else in my family likes it, maybe I'll give it a try and I'll like it too. And here I am 10 years later. Yeah. And I mean, like just, just to reiterate, you know, your father's profession, like for our listeners at the end of the nineties and early two thousands, it was a pretty pivotal point with the society of American archeology, span which is the largest conglomeration of American archeologists that represent us. And that was when the Kennewick man stuff was going full tits out and uh, our, uh, you know, my previous advisor, Jesus your current advisor, Christ. Bob Kelly. What, David? <laughs> I, nothing. I, th- I think we're. I think <laughs> the term "tits out" offend you. 
or the fact that we're talking about tits out in reference to NAGPRA. I may or may not have federal funding from the Army Corps of Engineers. So, like, oh, not mute. <laughs> so uh, getting back on track, um, and your your dad was pivotal to that case, and uh, your current advisor Bob was the uh, president of SAAs during that time, and they. Uh, did you meet Bob Kelly during that time or you just kind of like heard about him at the dinner table? No, no. So, so my dad and Bob actually barely passed each other. My dad retired as Bob was the president elect. So my dad was kind of on the tail end of his career with the SAA when Bob became president. So I actually never met Bob. I met Bob through David Hurst Thomas actually at an SAA in Sacramento because I was interning with Dave Thomas up at the American Museum of Natural History at the time. And we were out bar hopping after the sessions and ran into, oh God, who was it? It was Bettinger, Bob Kelly, and DHT having their, you know, reunion bros out night on the town. So that was the first time I met Bob actually was, was at SAAs in Sacramento. Dude, that's, but I mean, I bet that was a hell of a time. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I would have appreciated the gravity of the situation a whole lot more now than I did as like a 23 year old shovel bum intern that was just kind of getting their feet under underneath them in the field at the yeah. time it was just like oh hey what's up oh you're bob oh no you wrote that book about hunter gatherers yeah it's good work you know and then <laughs> <laughs> shit <laughs> eight years later i'm i'm his his phd student <laughs> for whatever reason he accepted me he must not re- must not have remembered meeting me well, and that's, just, that's kind of the funny thing about how I met Bob, too, is that I, I was on like a backpacking trip in the middle of winds in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, this like tall, lanky guy comes striding up. I'm like, you know, what's this guy? Who's this guy? What is he doing here? And he, uh, yeah, hung out with him. He proceeded to destroy one of my good friend Brian Schroeder's PhD ideas in front of me. Yeah. And but I, I, I didn't. I didn't I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have at the time. And I should have bonded with him before he came my advisor and showed up one day. Yeah. Everyone has their Bob Kelly story, you know, and then you can hear some more goddamn stories. Goddamn fucking David. Uh, OK, thank you. Uh, but you interned at AMNH, which stands for the American Museum of Natural History, right? Yep. Yep. That's a pretty was, uh, big fucking deal. And that's based out of New York. Um, yep. Yeah. Just go ahead and talk about it. Uh, so I had run into Lori at the St. Louis. So Lori, Lori Pendleton ran the lab and then her husband, Dave Thomas, ran the North American Archaeology Department in the AMNH. And I ran into them at an SAA in, I think it was St. Louis. And I was just about to finish my my senior year of undergrad, and she gets up in my face. And if any of you listeners have ever met Lori, you know she can be quite the bulldog sometimes, uh, even though she's she's quite the little lady. But uh, she gets in my face, and she's grilling me. Oh, Alex, you need to sign up for this internship. You need to do this. And you know, as as an undergrad, I'm just kind of like, yeah, sure, whatever. I, I'm gonna go do whatever I want after this. And I went and I did my field school up at the Paisley Five Mile Caves with Dennis Jenkins. And I'm sitting on the screens, and who walks up the hill but Dave Thomas and Lori Pendleton, asking me, "Where's my Where's my uh, application? Why haven't they seen it yet?" So suffice it to say, I, I applied, I got in, and I moved to New York City in the fall of. 2010. Where did you live? Dude, I lived in Midtown Manhattan on the west side. Yeah, I lived in Hell's Kitchen on 42nd between. That's not a bad part of town, though. It's like 49th, excuse me, 49th between 9th and 10th. That was awesome. Yeah. It was in in the middle of everything. Dope. And and when you were at AMH, you uh, had the opportunity to meet Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Is that correct? (laughs) yeah i got to meet neil degrasse tyson twice and he is quite the character he's quite the character he's a he's obviously a very intelligent guy but he knows he's really intelligent and he wants you to know that he's really intelligent 
Do you, do you want me to tell you the stories? Oh, yeah, dude. I love I know exactly. You know exactly what story I'm trying to get out of you. <laughs> okay, so I've got two stories of Neil deGrasse Tyson. The first one isn't as exciting as the second one. The first one, we had somehow gotten invited to a wine and cheese mixer in the astrophysics department. But the email wasn't supposed to be sent to us, but we were the only ones that showed up. So we crashed a wine and cheese mixer with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He knows we're not supposed to be there. We know we're not supposed to be there. But we're all sitting there drinking wine, eating cheese, listening to Neil talk about how 98 was a particularly good year in the Bordeaux region. So that was my first experience with Neil. The second experience and I think this is the story you're after, Carlton, was at um, the Christmas parties. The Christmas parties at AM&H, each department does their own on a different night. So it's basically just like two weeks of nonstop after hours partying in these different departments. And so they have the astrophysics one in the Hayden Planetarium, which is an absolutely gorgeous facility. And we're hanging out, we're drinking, whatever having a good time, lots of food, lots of good talk. And all of a sudden there's a Michael Jackson dance off and a big circle forms in the middle of the astrophysics department. And the three people in the middle are my boss, my crew chief, Janessa, the security guard, Andre, who worked in the basement and Neil deGrasse Tyson. So the, the two of them, uh, Andre and Janessa do their dance. And then Neil comes out and he takes off his jacket and he's got his little fucking science vest on, whatever. And this dude busts out the worm. I've never seen someone do a worm like this since Scotty Too Hottie in the WWF in like 1999. <laughs> <laughs> to, to see this guy that like, you know, I in subsequent years, Cosmos has become one of my favorite shows. And, you know, watching his YouTube videos and all that, you get this big image of Neil deGrasse Tyson. And then you see him doing the worm in the middle of a Christmas party. And it just kind of raises that whole respect level. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he's like, so like you were my, mentioning. Those and, are my Neil deGrasse. That's awesome, man. Well, like, and as you're mentioning, he's like a, he's like a wino to the T. He seems like one of those guys who just like, if he's going to do something, he just goes fucking ham and does it. Kind of thing. He was, he was talking about picking up hints of, you know, this, that, and the other bullshit on this vintage. And I'm just like, Yeah. It's free oh, wine. Yeah. This is better than the two buck chuck that I'm used to. <laughs> Do you guys think like when people go buy wine like ten years from now, they'll be like, oh, 2020. That was a that was a good year. Probably not. <laughs> all the like, all the airplanes so- stopped flying, so the fucking <laughs> contrails allowed more light to come down, so the plants produced bigger berries with more. See, flavor. like, do you think it actually would be a good year, or would it just be like a terrible <laughs> year for wine? <laughs> it depends on the uh, wildfires at the end of the season. Yeah, we're, we're slated. We're slated to um, have another record heat wave again. Yeah, um, which happens every year. Uh, but moving on, and kind of speaking of two buck Chuck. Um, you went to uh, university, Oregon University or University of Oregon? The University of Oregon. Go Ducks. Yeah. Home, home. The what is it? The League of Champions, the Pack, whatever. Pack 12 Conference of Champions. Yeah, there we go. I remember watching uh, basketball games over here at yours and David's house. And yeah, uh, that's Bill Walton's at, war cry. At Oregon, you were a member of a fraternity, which I was. is. I am. In my experience of also being a, a fraternity man, there's not many uh, graduate students in anthropology who were in Greek life. Um, so no, I kind of want to talk to you about rare that. Breed. Yeah, we're, we're a rare breed. I think you're the second Greek life member. No, maybe the third Greek life member that I've met in my 10 years in the field. We're, we're a very small minority. And we were talking about this the other night. It, it has helped me in a lot of ways, but it's really kind of been a negative in one big way. And that's, I, I call it the big scarlet F, the the frat boy that you're always wearing on your, on your chest. You know, everybody's got the stereotype of what frat boys should be. And I feel like most people don't really give a shit. No one, no one's really given me much of a hard time, but every now and then you run across someone who just, you know, maybe they had a bad experience with a fraternity in their undergrad. I, I don't know. But they just categorically do not like anyone associated with Greek life. And that's really been the only difficulty I've ever had with it. Otherwise, I think Greek life was a great training for archaeology because you're 
you're elbow to elbow with people 24 seven, having to live in close quarters and how to negotiate complex social dynamics. I mean, you get a head start on the alcoholism. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm I'm four years ahead of everyone else in the field. I had see I had CRM and felt like a seasoned veteran on day one. <laughs> I don't know if you should be proud of that. I know. Like, at twenty two, I was. At thirty two, oh, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I'm not so proud anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what I what I've experienced? Like the first day I showed up to Wyoming, I literally wore like scarlet letters. I was wearing like a sweatshirt. <laughs> you did. They yeah, were red. You, you wore your letters. Yeah. It and was they to Jonah Hearn's uh, to his barbecue. Yeah, yep. I don't know why. Yeah. I thought, that was like the only sweatshirt I had at the time, and it was like a little cold. And I was like, I'll just throw this on. And then, like, I immediately regretted that decision when, like, everyone kind of looked. And I was like, oh. Did you have your this? eyebrow ring in, too? No, no. I had I, I brought that back later in the semester for a bit. Okay. I was like, this is silly. And I was like, this okay. is dumb. I didn't know. No. I, I couldn't remember when that started. No, I had it. You had an, you had an uh, eyebrow ring? Oh, oh yeah, man. you did. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I tried to bring oh it back in grad school for like a second, and then I was like, "This is this is silly." That got uh, shut so, down pretty fast. Uh, yeah. So, our listeners, please berate Carlton on Instagram until he shows us a picture of this. Um, it's so on this my Instagram. Call. You can go far back. Like it was... hashtag bring back the ring. Yeah, yeah, bring back. Dude, you gotta do, you gotta do a you gotta do a hoop and make it look like Joe Exotic. Rolls the brussels. Yeah, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't a ring, and they were studs. But yeah, yeah um, no, I'm saying you need to get a ring, and then it'll look no. like that little ring that Joe Exotic's got that's barely no, hanging on no, to the no, side no, of his. No, no. You know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the thing it's just like holding on to for dear um, life, for absolute dear life. <laughs> but yeah, I, it, it, sorry, in my in like my experience, like. Like you said, it does has. I don't think it's really affected it. But what I do notice is like I have a, a big personality, and people will attribute to me being in a fraternity to, like, oh, that's just frat behavior. When it's you know mostly just like, no, I'm just a fucking goon. Fraternity, like this is this is what came out of the box. Like no assembly required. Like the fraternity didn't mold me in any way. You know, it didn't it didn't turn me into that. Um, do you do you remember when like you had you had the frat letters, you had the, the one ring in your eye, and you would go up to like at altitude and be like, "Yo, I want a Napoleonic Grenadine flush," and then the guy was like, "I don't know what the hell that is, man," and you were like, "Oh, it's just like you would like name a Here, whole bunch." Of I'll alcohol. show. I'll, I'll tell you what's in it. I'm not making that for you. No, 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 dude. I'll tell you what's in it. I don't care. Uh, it have, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because and the like, guy my was favorite- like, "You're in Wyoming." Just take a shot of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, you know, do you like, want whiskey or beer? <laughs> yeah, because I'd be show up, and be like, "Hey, I would like a adios, motherfucker," and they'd be like, "What's that?" That's what it was. And I'd be like, "It's like a uh, Long Island with different liquors, and it's blue, and people give me shit for it's blue." And I'm do you, like, "Do you remember you know at the Vancouver SAA yes. you trying to convince the Canadian bartender to make one, and they almost kicked us out of the bar?" Yeah, <laughs> I do. And they're just like, because everyone just gives me shit. I'm just like, you know what? Enjoy your five percent bread flavored soda. I'm drinking a fruit smoothie that'll have me fucked up beyond recognition in 15 minutes it's called alcohol efficiency so i'll stand by my adios motherfuckers any day but (laughs) those caused me so many problems on that lovely note um we're gonna say adios motherfucker to this first segment and we'll be back on the other side (laughs) Mm, yeah welcome back to episode 26 of a life in ruins podcast this is the after hours edition with Alex Crabe, the sexiest man in the world. <laughs> All of that was, was weird. Um, so, so um, the sexiest man. Uh, we have all. It's it's an interesting thing. We've all had field experiences with you in that, and we wanted to at least like bring up some of those experiences as part of this. These experiences kind of bond us together and, you know, and make us enjoy fieldwork and friendship and all that sort of thing. So where did you first meet David in the field? Jesus fucking Christ. I first had <laughs> knowledge of David. Oh God, David, when was it? It must've been summer of 2017. 
what did you so, call him the other day? That it's like genital warts. He just pops back up and you're oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. okay. So thing to like, associate me with. the best. Yeah. Well, I brought it up the other night because we weren't recording and I didn't think we'd actually talk about this. But Carlton brought it up, so I'm yeah. About come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so David, if anybody has ever listened to a band called The Darkness, they had a song back in like 2006 called "Growing on Me," and it's a song of about the lead singer's genital warts and it's like the most upbeat happy like love song these are like his constant companions but sometimes they go away and sometimes they come back but he's always happy to see them and anyway i i I was like david's like my growing on me genital warts like i'm always happy when i see him but sometimes he goes away and I don't hear anything from him, but then he pops back up and we have a flare up and then sometimes the meds take care of it and he goes away for a while. <laughs> I don't, I don't know about that, man. I just consider you my big brother. <laughs> I mean, yeah, David, David's become my little brother. We first, so David and I have known each other since what, like 2016, man. So uh, I met, I met 20, one of David's. I think- 20 i was still at undergrad so before 24 before 2014 for sure yeah yeah because i had done i had done crm with one of your undergrad friends and right. she was like when you get to tennessee you gotta you gotta meet up with this guy david he's oh, the shit yeah 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 uh and then i didn't actually ever officially meet you dave anderson introduced us at his house one time yeah and he introduced you as gimli to me and right. and I didn't know who you I didn't know you. You were Gimli the undergrad for like a good nine months. And then Topper. And then we dug at Topper together. You popped into my block a couple times and then we would go down to the to White Woman's Point and party. Yeah, I heard yeah, you can get, that was I always like weird because like I never general awards from back. Topper pretty easily. So it's not it's not hard, man. It's really not hard. I'm just kidding. Sorry, David, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we need to cut all of that out. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, I remember remember one summer we were down – I was teaching field school and we were down. So white woman's point is like where the boat launches and where they have oh, right, a, right. a yeah. water spigot for like drinking water. So we would go down there every morning and fill up coolers, but it was also kind of the after hours hangout spot. Cause you could go down and bump music and it wasn't a big yeah. deal. Like you were right away, you weren't Savannah bothering River. anybody. Yeah. yeah. And it's right on the Savannah river. It's gorgeous, you know, wonderful place to, to hang out and party. And I remember one, one year David showed up, we were down there. I think it was like a Friday night. So we were having like an extra, extra long uh, celebration. And David just rolls up in out I, of I the dark. From Wyoming and I was like, what's up? I'm at Topper That's in South Carolina. <laughs> yeah. So we're all, you know, we're all two and a half sheets to the wind. It's pitch black in the middle of private property, South Carolina and you just see this this Jeep, Ned the Jeep, coming down the two track. And I think you were bumping like Wu-Tang or NWA or something. That's and it was like, what? Who is that coming? And then David Ian Howe. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably that or the Beastie Boys or the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. It was, it was probably the latter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember that. And I, I so would that's, that's really when we've worked together. And then I think we worked together a couple times in Wyoming. We did that Canyon Creek project together up in yeah. the Bighorns when I first got here, where you, me, and Spencer were digging that little test unit in the cave. And yeah, Eric and Randy were there too. Yeah, and Eric and Randy. And Randy was gassing out the back of the cave in his telephone booth one oh by my one, God. And he, giggling yeah. like a child. Guys, <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you this, but Randy brought a bag of spaghetti for lunch one day. Like he, We just didn't have Tupperware, so he brought leftover spaghetti in a bag. And then the man proceeds to fashion chopsticks he out his of fork. twigs that he found in he the woods. He forgot room. his fork. <laughs> so he whittled chopsticks out of pine tree and starts <laughs> this is this is Dr. Randy Haas, who's now a professor at uh is it Davis? Do you see Davis? Yeah. Davis. Yeah, yeah. Davis. Uh yeah. yeah. And yeah, he's yeah, cool. David and I David and I were in the back of this cave and we'd put a we'd put a one by one in the back 
for stratigraphy and Randy's at the, it's a telephone booth at this point. It's probably like five feet deep. And I, I wonder if it was the Skeddy that got him, but this oh, guy was gassing up a storm and David and I have to lean over the one by one and hold <laughs> flashlights for him because it's dark. <laughs> and we're just sitting there getting wafts of Randy's butt. <laughs> and and he's just sitting there giggling like an idiot just having the time of his life cranking out units farting up a storm and watching us just like wretch <laughs> it was a good time yeah shit yeah. out the field yeah i don't think i did anything else that because those are the years at topper i would like drive down just to hang out because i wasn't like yeah it was just my summer. yeah you weren't yeah, you were just hanging out because I think you had you had already come up to Wyoming at that point. Yeah, and I think I came to Topper for like a week, and then I went up to do my internship at, in New York, and then and then um, I moved out. Yeah, and then you met Connor and Carlton later. Oh God, yeah. For, yeah. Then I met Connor. I'm so yeah. sorry, and so I have a, the one time Connor and I are not allowed to hang out at conferences unsupervised. <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> we th- there's a whole series of pictures from the night before my 31st birthday at was it Albuquerque? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was Albuquerque. Yeah. And there's this whole series of photos where you can see the lights dimming, 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 and going completely out while Connor and I are talking to each other. <laughs> It's like, oh, like, that's why I spent my 31st birthday praising the porcelain goddess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lights in my eyes. I swear it was, yeah. it, was a, it was the hotel bar because I was like, oh, we'll just have like one more drink, you know, nightcap, you know, kind of end this thing off. And yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it like, was. And then and it I, was like, <laughs> it was like three hours later, and we both were like, oh no, we have eight a.m. sessions to go to. It's two in the morning. <laughs> I remember Connor getting back to the hotel room because like me, David and Connor shared a hotel room and that was just its own, own pleasure. It was me <laughs> herding cats for a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, cause you guys have to deal with my just repugnant ADHD. And you're like, David, you were, you had literally just turned the shower on. Go shower. Don't, don't press. It couldn't, <laughs> it couldn't be worse than when the three of you and then Chris shared a hotel room in DC. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh. oh you walked yeah. in you walked into that room and it if you can imagine a Dutch oven but like a room, it was that. But that wasn't us. That was Chris Rowe. Like I'm pouring <laughs> all blame at Chris Rowe. That was him. Because every time we had a ghost to bring, you used the bathroom and like there's no fan. It was just I'm like, pleading I'm pleading the fifth on that one. All yeah. I know is the four of y'all were in there and it smelled like the inside of someone's dirty drawers. <laughs> and Barlow would come hang out and then like it just became like a party room and it just smelled like a gymnasium it was bad a bunch of empty beer cans everywhere <laughs> yeah. oh that, that's when Carlton was like yeah, I'd never heard him say this before but he, like he walked in and it was like a CIA agent like casing the place but he kicks the door open and he was like alright here's what we're gonna do we're gonna look at this bathtub we're gonna fill it up with some ice and fill this bad boy with some linglings <laughs> 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 it was impressive and i was like yes sir <laughs> see this is why you always want to have a fraternity guy with you when you go to to hotels we know how to set it up for parties fair. Uh, dc was also awesome because great we're both from northern virginia and like dc was where our old haunts were that's home. And like we just and so we just had a blast with like taking everyone to all the we, bars. And we had your birthday at that one of your the, favorites, yeah. the Big Hunt, my my yeah. favorite bar in DC. Yeah, God, DC was so much fun. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a great time. The first time I met Carlton. Yeah, and kind of kind of building off of that, you've worked with Carlton as well, which sounds at least in the field. And it sounds like you guys had a, a kind of a hell of a time together. Carl Carlton and I are great field kindred spirits. Like, we just, we fucking just, we work really well together in the field. I mean, we're, we're good friends to begin with and we're compatible, whatever. But for some reason in the field, like we seem to bring the best out of each other. And by best, sometimes I mean the worst. And can I say that that first session I worked with you, so like to build a picture for everyone, yeah. um, we had for Bob's Kelly's birthday, 
we had his uh, graduate student only session at Omrock Shelter. And this is before I got there, but apparently Bob mentioned to one of his grad students, I hope I get this site finished before I die, which is cryptic enough for his, for Maddie um, Mackey to gather everyone to surprise Bob. And I was the dumbest person at this excavation because I was the only person without a master's degree. The only two people without doctorates were Maddie and Crabe. And me. Yeah, and, and then Nathaniel, everyone else, Nathaniel and Spencer hadn't finished at that point. Yeah, neither so had, neither had Bridget. And then there was like a bunch of Bob's old students, like Judd Finley, um, Jeff Smith, Jeff Smith, and it was like the fucking it was like SEAL Team Six of excavation because like that's what made me an archaeologist was having all those eyes telling me how to excavate, and like that is by far my favorite archaeological session to date was just to sit in that unit that one by one like six feet down just having like over five decades worth of archaeological experience guiding me on my by uh one by one it was it was one of those experiences where you look back on it and you're just like wow i can't believe i was surrounded by so many intelligent people I and mean, it was it was awesome but we also acted like degens the whole time yeah, and to give our <laughs> to give our users a little context, like most of these sites that you excavate on, you have, you know, your PhD kind of PI guy. You have the crew chief who might be getting his PhD or or whatnot, and you know, you might have a couple other like uh, master students or whatnot. But largely, like the the a lot of people who are digging in these units are actually like undergrads or volunteers or anything like that. So this is like super rare to have this much like degrees and talent in one place. It's, it's, it's crazy. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't happen in the field. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. And, and it, it might have spawned one of the funniest lines I've ever heard in an archeological site. <laughs> I don't and, and it could, and it could be that, you know, we were all kind of dehydrated and it was hot and whatever. But so let me let me paint the picture for you. Alm is a dry rock shelter, a extremely dry rock shelter. Carlton's the only person that can go to a dry rock shelter and come out looking like he was just bushwhacking through a swamp. I've I'm never sweating. seen I've never seen it before. Holy shit. All of us come up, you know, covered in dust like normal people out of a rock shelter. Carlton looks like he just fucking did a did a. A, uh, a bathe in a in a mud pool i don't know how he does it <laughs> i have no idea how but uh this but anyway bob so said that right bob's like i've never like only yeah. come out of a dry cave with mud on his hands because i'm just a yeah. individual yeah yeah he was uh very moist in that cave so anyway the way Alm is set up is we've got it's it's um a south east facing uh rock face and we've got units kind of aligned four three two one from the west to the east and carlton's digging one of the triangle i'm digging another corner of the triangle our friend and colleague nathaniel kitchell is digging the third corner of the triangle and poor dr eric robinson (laughs) it's not it's not like a triangle in the same like it's it looks like a tetris block like yeah, the triangle yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like me and Crave are staring at each other. Like we're the, the only we have 100 percent visibility of each other. Everyone else is kind of like off to the side or or like crunched into a one by one surrounded by other active one by ones. And so Eric Robinson, Dr. Eric Robinson, who was a guest on this show a little while ago, one of our favorite people is in the middle and he's just stuck there all day. And between Carlton, Nathaniel, and myself, there was a lot of ribbing going on, uh, mostly because he was right in between us and it was really convenient. But we're excavating through this this layer. There's this bark mat. It, it's really kind of odd. It looks like some sort of prepared bark mat that people would have brought in and put down on the dirt so they didn't have to sit in the dirt while they were hanging out in this rock shelter. And so we're digging through it, and it's been a really long, hot day. And Eric's getting a little flustered and, you know, we've been talking shit all day long. Because he said something stupid like, I don't watch Star Wars because it's uh, like intellectually just stupid. But then he said something along the lines, but like I like uh, it was like some other show. And we were ripping on him for like, how can you hate Star Wars? But like this other thing. He was getting very hipster, hating on popular things and loving obscure things. <laughs> and, and Carlton, I, he's he's kept his mouth quiet for too long, and I'm starting to wonder what's going on in his head. Because when Carlton's quiet, you know something's going on. 
And Carlton, you looked up at me with those bright blue eyes, and I've never seen them sparkle like this before, and your mouth lit up. And rem- remember, Carlton's covered in, f- in mud right now, so the only thing that's bright about him is his smile in his eyes. So he looks at me, and he, bright- he lights up, and he goes, hey, Eric, do you think this Matt's bark is worse than its bite? <laughs> and Bob from like a hundred meters away, you can hear Bob go, <laughs> the whole block drops. All of us stop working. I'm pretty sure Eric got up and just walked out of the unit. He was like, I'm done. No, he threatened me because during this whole trip, I was sharpening my trowel and he oh, was that's like, right, that's right. He's like, give me your fucking trowel. I'm going to stab you with it. Did you cut yourself on that trowel? Bob said that? You about it? No, no, Eric. No, Eric. Said that. And, oh. I did, and I did cut myself on that trowel. Yeah, yeah. Carlton, you're going to cut yourself on that. No, I'm not. Four days later, uh, I I cut myself on my trowel. <laughs> well, yep. let's trowel on to the next session because we are out of time. <laughs> that wasn't that funny, guys. Welcome back to episode 26 of A Life in Ruins podcast. We are interviewing Dr. Alex Crabe, and this is the serious section. He doctor. doesn't have a doctorate yet. Future Dr. Crabe. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> no, he's going to finish, and it's going to be Bob Kelly's swan song, and it's going to be beautiful. So, you know, one of the – it's funny because you mentioned that story in Albuquerque when we were drinking, and um, we got into a really deep conversation about kind of mental health and academia and archaeology in general, and, I, and I, it, we had a really good conversation about that. And you've told us that, you know, mental health – and graduate school is something that you've become very passionate about. Um, would you mind speaking about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I I didn't really start focusing on my own mental health until I started the PhD. And it was something that I had always kind of put on the back burner. And I'd always kind of adopted that, that field tech shovel bomb mentality of let's put in the 12 hours that I got to do. And We'll do the work, we'll go to bed, we'll wake up the next day, repeat, cycle, wash, rinse, repeat, you know, whatever. And uh, It wasn't until I got to the PhD that I really realized that I needed to, I needed to take time to do things that weren't archaeology related. That by falling down that, that trap of just constantly throwing yourself at your work is... It can be very productive, but at the end of the day, what kind of damage are you doing to yourself? And as as someone who who deals with mental health and uh, has their own issues, as everyone does, it's something that I I wanted to purposefully destigmatize and bring into the light in our field because I just don't think that it's something that very many people really talk about. It's certainly not something that our advisors talk to us about as master's students, as undergrads, as PhD students. How do you, how do you deal with the stress of being a student? Um, the insecurity, the, the financial insecurity, the, the not knowing where your job's going to be in the next couple of years. Um, how do you deal with all that? So Connor, as you were mentioning, our, our conversation really kind of naturally gravitated towards the, well, how do, you, how do you decompress at the end of the day? How do you make time for you to do the things that make you happy that aren't related to archaeology and being able to kind of compartmentalize to an extent to, to be able to take a break and to walk away from it? Um, and I think that's really important. I've seen a lot of my colleagues. I've seen a lot of former former friends and coworkers that have just burned themselves out because they get this horse blinders, sociopathic approach to their work. And I, I don't think that's a healthy way for us to to be doing what we're doing. So really, like my my big. I don't want to call it a crusade because that's a loaded term and also not what I'm doing, but really the, the cause that I, I'm trying to, to uh, rally support for is destigmatizing mental health and just bring it to a point where as professionals and as humans, we can all talk about it. And it can be something that's, that's in kind of the public discourse so that way we're all not struggling in silence. You know, there's no reason for us to each individual to think that they're the only one to, to deal with these problems. 
Um, that's just not the case. Everyone I've talked to from undergrad through tenured professors have or still deal with a lot of the same issues and problems that I'm dealing with now as a PhD student. And I think it's important to let the greater archaeological community know that you're not alone, that everybody else at some point has felt this way, whether they want to admit it or not is another thing, but that there are other people out there and you have support. So that's, that's really something that I'm, I'm trying to, to bring about is, is just start these conversations and create an environment where we can have discussions. Yeah. And I think it, it, it took me actually stepping away from academia to realize that my, you know, not stepping away as in finishing my master's and getting into the professional world to realize that my mental health during my, you know, master's degree, which, you know, isn't as stressful as a PhD or anything like that. But like to, I had to step away from it to realize that I, my mental health was severely on the decline in those years because of all the things you had mentioned, you know, financial stress, grade stress, you know, publication stress, all these sorts of things are weighing on you during this time. And it's hard to take that when you're engrossed in it, it's hard to take that step back and realize, Hey, you know, there are other things in life and I have to take time for myself to be healthy. Otherwise I will burn out in this profession. Yeah, exactly. It's tough, man. Exactly. Oh, sorry. I thought you were gonna go. Um, the, I would agree. Like the, I think the first year of grad school for me, I, I didn't realize I had mental health issues in undergrad. I kind of just thought I was like weird. Um, so I didn't like see like a, like a therapist or anything or get that checked. But like when I got to grad school, I like finally was like, okay, this is like a, a, an, a like a physical issue with me. Like I have to get this looked at and like, yeah, it like made a world of difference, but like understood, like it took me to doing that to finding out that like, whoa, I really had some like issues I needed to address like with what was going on in my life, you know? And that made it like really like better, I guess, but still like, like when you're in that situation, it's just really like, I don't know, it's taxing on your mental health. I don't know how else to put it like without, yeah, just, you know, and, and I think there should be, you know, I think there should be a class somewhere in graduate school, undergrad that like talks about these things. Cause I don't, and, you know, I'm glad that Crave is, you know, taking this up because it's no one, there's not a class that says, Hey, you're going to struggle with your mental health in graduate school. It's kind of like brushed under the rug. Like everyone does it, you know, just, just kind of deal with it kind of thing. And I, I think that needs to be, it's a really toxic environment. In my opinion, you, you have basically a generation of people who are saying, well, I dealt with all this. So you need to deal with it too, to earn your stripes. And having been in a fraternity and having had to go through initiation and having to literally earn my stripes, it's one thing for a fraternity to do that. It's another for a profession to, to foster that mentality. And I, I think it's, I think it's kind of toxic. Yeah. Mm. I'm, Definitely. Carlton? Yeah. So, I mean, like, um, and this, this directly relates to Crave. And I, I, you, might, you might remember my first semester at Wyoming. People who are in undergrad or, or, or thinking about grad school, your first semester at graduate school is like the hardest. Um, at Wyoming, we didn't have any assignments due until the end of the year, the big paper. And you kind of, you know, enjoy September through November probably more than you should. And then that was last two weeks in December are just fucking awful. And, you know, just say like, I always went to growing, uh, going to Wyoming. I always looked up to you, Alex, um, coming from Northern Virginia, having the fraternity background. Like I also look up to you as like an older brother because getting there, you really took care of me more so than other people in the department. And, uh, I remember, and I, I could say this cause I don't think this person listens to the podcast, but my, the, the girl I was dating at the time who was back in Virginia, went to jail during mm-hmm. finals and completely destroyed my work ethic and, and threw me into a huge tailspin of stress, anxiety, because I know what was going on back in Virginia. She was in jail. I'm trying to tie up papers 
and I, I was thinking about dropping out. I was really like, I'm not cut out for this. Like the, that overwhelming sense of stress, both that I caused to myself by not putting in the time when I should have, but also outside stress that I had not accounted for. But I remember coming to your office like three days before my first paper was due and like crying in your office. Like, I don't know what the fuck to do. And you were like, dude, go home. Don't work. Just just collect yourself. Like, just take the day off. You're not going to get any work done today. You're going to make it you're going to make it so much worse. Then at the end of the day, as long as you like tell your professors what's going on, they should help you and they'll understand because at, at that point, I'm like, I'm a grad student, like I'm supposed to be this, that and the other thing. And uh, I took that to heart. And I remember I emailed uh, Dr. Jason Tui and a couple others. I was like, this is what's going on in my life. I am so sorry. I am trying to get these done. And they were all overwhelming. Like, holy shit, dude, calm down. You're fine. Just turn it in. Like, we'll give you two days on each paper. Just like deal with your, with, with what's going on in your life. And if it hadn't been for you, I probably would have turned in really dog shit papers and have been so disheartened, I probably would have just dropped out. Well, I'm I'm glad you listened. <laughs> but no, I, I remember you coming in. I remember you being very upset. And yeah, I, that's that's kind of always been my personal mantra is when, well, it's not really my personal mantra. It's something my dad always taught me growing up was he's a lawyer. So I got lawyered a lot as a kid growing up. And his thing was in any argument, in any situation, in any scenario, as soon as you're emotional, you've lost. You are no longer in control of that situation. And the only way to regain control is to is to check those emotions and to bring the logic back. Sometimes that's, you know, going home and taking care of your stuff. Sometimes that's doing the human hard reset of going to bed and waking up the next day and dealing with things. But yeah, that that's a trick that I've I've tried to use and I'm I, I'm I'm glad you came to me. I really am and I'm glad that I was able to help because I I know how hard things can be especially being so far away from home. And, and that's the thing, man, like Carlton, I think you, you had told me that a while ago, but I totally forgot all that was going on in your life and like, damn, but like everybody at that time in their life, you just finished, you know, college usually, and you're hopping right into graduate school. Like everyone's going through something like that early, you know, at least going through something in their life. People got kids now, people get, you know, getting married, you got financial troubles and stuff back home. Like I moved across the country, you know, just anything's going on, but everyone's got all that like just life stuff going on. And then you're thrown into this like safari of like people that are all competing for like, you know, to be smart and like everyone's self-conscious, like, Oh, am I smart as this person? And you're told to read all these like papers from, and you know, books of all these smart anthropologists that live before you. And they're like, okay, now tell me how they think. And like, why are you smarter than them? And like, it's just overwhelming. And then you, you know, you got, you dealing with your own stuff. It's a lot. Like, I feel like I'm complaining, but like, that's just the you're, reality you're of not, academia, you're not I guess. Yeah, you're not yeah. you're not complaining. I mean, we we have the the real expectations and weight that's placed on us by the profession and the department that we work for, but we also bring in all of our own baggage and our own expectations. And I think a lot of it is how how do you reconcile those two things? Are they is it the same group of baggage or can you compartmentalize things a little bit and, and keep your professional life from bleeding into your personal life? Well, and it's super hard because especially when with your, your cohort, you're supposed to be in general, you're supposed to be like this family that works together to get things done. But on the same, same kind of area, you're competing with them for money, for resources, anything like that. So, you know, I'm glad I really enjoyed the university of Wyoming that we had this kind of separation where we could go drink beers with these folks and, and enjoy a, a conversation. It was probably, it all probably all came back to archeology span eventually, but it did. <laughs> there was, yeah, always, yeah, yeah, always, always, because it's always on our mind, but like, at least there was that, there was that time to have those conversations, but it's, it's a competitive world that you're thrown into. And like Dave was saying, you're like reading these people who are like revolutionizing the field and you're like, I'm a I'm a minnow in this kind of big sea of anthropology, and that's what you're exposed to. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
Got to keep your head I mean, about you. Got to keep I mean, your head I, about you. Got to have I, your I, escapes. I mean, I've tried. Well, I haven't tried. I have. I mean, like I've taken that lesson, and also like I got to give props to Alex Garcia. He, I like if you're my older brother, Alex Garcia is like is my annoying. No, like my annoying sister-in-law. <laughs> I think that's a better, a better way to describe it. <laughs> and, and I mean that with all, I mean that with like all love. But he kind of oh said the God, same thing. But you, you, you're you you know more head at home. But like I've taken that role here at CU Boulder, <laughs> and uh, not the not the annoying uh, sister-in-law. Such but a like, good way to put it. But like here at Boulder, I'm coming in and now being a senior grad student, being like starting my third year of my PhD here. And Boulder mostly is a master's to PhD program. So a lot of these kids are coming in like 21. I showed up at Wyoming when I was like 23. And um, I sit down with them and I try to like I take what you told me, Crave, and I tell them, like, listen, this is going to suck your first year. I'm always here. Like we might not have classes, but here's my number. Let me tell you, like, how important your mental health is. And I like here at Boulder, we have a really good um, counseling service. Uh, grad students at Boulder get 20 um, something free counseling sessions oh, that's uh, for the awesome. year. That's so I'm great. like, here's their number. Like I go every fucking week and it's been amazing. So I give them all these resources. I'm like, dude, Why I am fucking it's just, it's here. a wonderful neutral third party to go talk to that has no stake in what you're saying other than they're there to listen. That that's it. Yeah. I did, that's wonderful, man. That you, yeah, that y'all have that. We have drop in uh, counseling here at Wyoming too, but I don't think it's quite as comprehensive. I could be wrong. Well, good. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad you're you're taking that role, man. I think it's important that at least one person in every department is is the voice of reason in terms of mental health. Because you know, as as we've all seen, and as we've said in this segment, like we've seen some people burn out. I've I've seen a lot of people start masters and not finish. I've seen several people start PhDs and just get to the writing stage and never finish because they burn themselves out. I'd say from my experience, it's about half. Like if not half, yeah. it's like 40% of people like drop out. It, masters it's a in. pretty high attrition yeah. rate. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I don't think there's any shame in that. Like it just, no. life is, you know. It's a, hard, it, it's a hard program to get through, man. It's a, it's a marathon. Exactly. With it's a, not a with, sprint. With, it's a marathon with a tough mutter at the end. And then you finish off with the Tour de France. Like it's yeah, it, yeah. It's it's no joke getting getting and, masters and PhDs. And if you don't take care of yourself, you'll never do it because, like, there, I mean, in grad school, there is a pressure to finish, and you have to realize like that's that's not real. That's like that's just a pressure. But there's no real reason that you need to like stress yourself out. You know, if you need to take an extra year, an extra two years to get your masters or your PhD, fucking do it. The important thing is you get it done, not I how took long three it years takes for you. My masters, yeah. Yeah, you gotta took, you gotta do it sometimes. Yeah, I took I took three years as well. I had to take that time away to, you know, kind of gather myself. Or I'll, I'll, I could yeah, have done I, it in two years. <laughs> I you don't have time to breathe, and you you need to remember to breathe. Otherwise, you'll you'll drown. You'll sink. And and I've seen it happen to a lot of people. And I'm not saying that it's going to happen to everyone, but the people that tend to not focus on keeping themselves sane and happy and taking care of themselves, I've noticed tend to be the ones that burn out fastest. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that like, that like affects like your later profession, your life. So like, if you go in and try to be a professor, you know, with that kind of mindset and you're already burnt, you're not going to be able to put that time and effort into teaching kids in the way you want to, you know? So it's, it's not, it's something that like cascades and keeps affecting your life further down. So if you solve these problems or at least try to deal with these problems now, it, it can be beneficial or, you know, have tools to, to figure things out later. I think it makes us, it makes us absolutely, it makes us better members of the archeological community. It, it, at the end of the day, in my opinion, you know, if we're all taking care of ourselves, that means that we're all able to do better work, which means that we're doing what we should be doing in the first place. That's our mandate, right? Yeah. And you can't, you can't effectively, pursue that mandate if you're not taking care of yourself in the process it's like taking care of a car you got to get the oil changed you got to put air in the tires you're gonna have to put some wiper fluid in it from time to time 
Dude, don't fucking remind me. I just hit my 90,000 mile checkup and I, I think I just brought in the other day it's like $15,000 in fluid changes. Oh, oh God. Yeah. So the Fiesta's well. almost at 100K, huh? Dude, that Fiesta has gone places. That Fiesta has seen <laughs> more than what a usual Ford Fiesta sees. Like, I have taken I, that. I remember you showing up to Laramie in a fucking Ford Fiesta, and I was like, oh, that first winner is going to be so fun for him. <laughs> It made me a better driver. I'll tell you, like when it snows here in Boulder, that Fiesta can fucking handle hills and getting around in the ice more than most of these Yahoos with Subarus. <laughs> so I guess for the audience listening, for people that are interested in going to grad school, like I, we don't want to scare you away like in any regard. Like it was honestly the best time of my life. Found out who I was, the whole thing. But like on behalf of all of us, like, I'll let you guys talk. Is there any advice you'd give to people that are going into the field that, you know, they should hear because that we didn't hear, you know, no one told me this stuff. The, the number one piece of advice that I got from all the old timers and by the old timers, I mean, David Hurst, Thomas, Vince Stepanitis, Bob Kelly, Dave Anderson, the, the big wigs, right? Mm. Don't do it unless you're passionate about it. If you don't have the passion Find what makes you passionate and do that instead. Because like I like I said, it, it is a marathon. It is something that is a lot of work. But if it's something you're passionate about and you truly do care about, it's one of the most rewarding fields you, you could get, get into. I mean, you, you make some of the best friends you could ever make simply because you work in such close proximity to them for so long. But yeah, that, that was the piece of advice that really – rang true with me was make sure you're passionate about it. And if you're passionate about archeology, span do it. It's worth it. I'd agree. You guys. Yeah. I would, uh, you know, kind of piggy piggybacking off that point. Um, if you ever, if you ever get to a point where you're, you know, kind of disinterested or, you know, having a hard time, it's okay to take a step back. And I think that's, advice that I would have given to myself, you know, between undergrad and graduate is that I would have taken a step back, done some CRM, done some real work and, and, and kind of taken that time to myself. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I'm going to second that. I needed to grow I, up. Yeah. Um, I think a good piece of advice that I can give is like, as much as you want to separate your personal life from your work life, they're pretty intertwined. And uh, my second semester here at Boulder, I had some like really, crappy um social stuff going on with like my parents not social stuff and it, it almost wrecked me here and I, I didn't tell anybody and i had bob and eric robinson like asking about deadlines like why i'm not making these deadlines and i kept making excuses until finally i broke down on the phone with eric and i was like this is what's going on with one of my parents i don't know what to do i'm stressed i'm so far away like my life is falling apart in this way i don't know if i'm gonna have a parent in a month and he's like, dude, you need to tell Bob right away. And you need to tell Doug if you haven't told him. And then telling them like, hey, this is what's going on in my personal life. And they were just like, dude, you need to tell people sooner. Because if they know, the sooner people know about problems in your life, especially if you're their grad student, the better they can help you and give you leniency. Because if you, if you bottle all that stuff in, you don't tell anyone and you keep making, you lie to make excuses, it's only going to make things worse. But if you're just honest with yourself and honest with those around you, you can better support yourself. And that's a critical in graduate school is to come in terms with these things and to find the support because you'll get breaks. Like grad school, they, they, meant, they, they try to scare you and they set up these arbitrary deadlines. But at the end of the day, they want you to finish. And if there's things preventing you from finish or doing your work, they want to make sure you're getting the help to get through those things. And so if like anybody listening and you're thinking about grad school and wanting to go, it's, it's, you know, a master's degree is like two to four years and a PhD, like five to eight. There's going to be a lot of things going on in your life. You're going to evolve as a person. You're going to evolve with your friends and family. And you're just going to have to take those things. And the most important aspect is letting people know what's going on. You don't have to tell them everything, but just be like, hey, this is what's going on in my life. It's a distraction. I need to handle it. And if you have an advisor and friends who give a shit about you, they will understand and support you. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yep. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And I want to I want to send people back to um, Amy Atwater's episode as well, because Amy, you know, 
really talked about mental health. Um, I think it's, what is that, episode six or something like that. We had a really good conversation with Amy about that. Five. Go back and listen to that episode because she has some really good advice as well. Um, And on that note, um, as we've talked about, you know, through this whole thing, you know, there's obviously some ups and downs with graduate school, archaeology, anthropology, everything. Um, uh, Mr. Crabe, would you choose, if you could choose again, would you choose to live a life in ruins? My mind. Would you maybe have been a lawyer? Oh, God. Can you imagine me as a lawyer? I'd be so frick. <laughs> no. no. God. Yeah, you think I'm bad. You think I'm bad now. Put a law degree behind my name. (laughs) And cut. Well, well, everyone, on that note, um, we just interviewed uh, Alexander Crabe from the University of Wyoming, and we'll uh, see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Uh, okay, gentlemen, this is the joke section. Um, oh, jokes. So, yeah, they're at the end. There's a joke at the end of every episode, Krabo. Oh, man, I need to listen to more episodes. <laughs> Poser. Uh, so, so gents. Hey, uh, I was I was here from the beginning, so <laughs> I feel kind of like the godfather of this whole fucking thing because I was the one that was like, yeah, guys, that's a great idea. You should do it. <laughs> so, so, godfather and gentleman, uh, what was the Austro- Australopithecines' favorite sitcom? Oh, Friends. Uh, I love nah. Lucy. Oh! Oh! Hey, that was actually that was good. That was good. That was good. Oh, that was good. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.